man, so many memories for 14 years at ESPN. And the guy who was my day one, the first dude I'll meet when I walk in at the door, in the door at ESPN on NFL Live, is a guy we're going to be talking to right now. And his name is Trey Wingo. Uh, you guys met day one? Day one. I walked in the door and I was an idiot. And I sat down next to him. And I think it was Jerry Rice that retired on yeah. day one. Yeah. And Trey walked me through this. I'm talking about, you know, you ever had somebody to hold your hand through a process? Mm-hmm. I mean, not, and it wasn't just that day. It was for like the first eight years he was holding my <laughs> hand through, through the process. But just, you know, great guy, great guy to be around. But just, a, I mean, he's family. It, it, it became more than just friends. It's, this is family that we're talking to right now with Trey Wingo. So, Trey. He's your kinfolk. He's kinfolk. And I can, it's weird because I'm calling him Trey. I always call him Sensei. I've always, since day one, I call him Sensei. So, Sensei, uh, how's it going, brother? How are things doing? Going? I'm good, man. And I got to tell you, that first day, I don't know if anybody had a rough one. I love the way you think. You said, I think it was Jerry Rice retired. Yeah. <laughs> Super Bowl time retired on a day where Darren was supposed to be observing. Yes. And we're like, okay. The guy that was the menace to the Niners and the guy that was the menace to the Cowboys, uh, we got one of them here, and the greatest receiver of all time is retiring. You're no longer observing, you're working. Yeah. And so we had to throw him on camera, and we, he actually did great. But then at the end of doing NFL Live, we used to do these things called instant. Oh, don't bring that up. <laughs> Sensei, don't bring that up, man. You want the good stuff, you're getting it. Um, <laughs> It was just where the, the analyst would just look into the camera for about 30, 40 seconds and talk about something. And honestly, it's the hardest thing to do because you're just by yourself. There's not a there's not an anchor with you. There's not someone else to talk with. It's just they point at the camera at you and say, talk for 30 or 45 seconds about this topic. And no one is born with a stopwatch in their head that says, as you're talking, this feels like anything. This feels like funny. So it was really a hard thing to do. And I'm not going to lie to you. I think it was take 38 or 30. 42. 42. We finally got what we wanted, or they got what they wanted out of there. It oh, was the brutal. toughest spot we've ever put anybody in on day one. But That's awesome. He came through. Yeah. Right, hey, hold on. Be honest. You're sitting there, you're watching this dude struggle. In this moment, what are you enjoying thinking? it? Got yeah, speed well, up. Yeah, there's probably a part of you that's thinking, yeah, he thought he was good on the field. This is this is a different ball game. <laughs> but what are you sitting there thinking? Like this guy's an absolute scrub. Look, everything was a mess that day. For people that maybe have forgotten, it was it was uh, he was in Denver Broncos training camp. Jerry Rice was when he finally announced his mm. retirement. And we're talking about the greatest wide receiver, arguably the greatest player of all time in the NFL. And at one point. As he's holding the press conference to be retired uh, or just announcing his retirement, the Broncos say, hey, we need you to finish up because we need the room for a meeting. I mean, it was not the best to begin with. So Darren was thrown. Um, I, I knew he was going to be good eventually. I mean, look at him. Come on. Oh, please. That million-dollar smile, baby. Oh, please. <laughs> Brother, we, we went through – I mean, I should have paid you for the 101 lessons 
uh, for 10 years, straight years. I mean, it was, you would think, okay, the first year, yeah, but no, this went on for about nine to 10 years. Trey, Trey, Trey's probably like, well, now that you say that, I'm glad you brought it up because yeah. now this is why I'm actually on the calls because I'm going to ask you to reimburse me for all those training sessions. How, how many times did y'all sit there after the show was done? Because, you know, I think about like in our situation, when you're a younger person in any business, you're getting mentored, you know, the, the, the mentor is taking extra time. So how many times were y'all just sitting there Trey, you're having to coach this guy through different pointers and things like that. I've got to think that happened to quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, that, that was actually the fun part of it for me is just talking shop with him because, you know, he was asking me questions about the business and I just wanted to know more about the Cowboys in the 90s, which, by the way, <laughs> would be the greatest East, you know, 30 for 30 movie of all time. Yeah, and seriously. And, for and sure. I have talked about on, on many occasions. In the green know, room. We might want to have a multi-part series on the 60 to 30 to 30, the 90s Dallas Cowboys. Good Lord. I don't know. It'd have to air on HBO. I was going to say it's got to be HBO or Netflix or something like that. I don't know if a Disney-owned station could could play that. Well, hey, man, let's go back, Trey, because, you know, one thing that that I've always been intrigued about you, Trey, is that you have a story, man. And there's been so many people that want to get in the industry. And I've had my, my son's best friend has always wanted to be Trey Wingo. He's 19 now, but he wanted, cause he's always knew he's watched you during the draft. He's watched you on NFL live. He's watched you on countdown. He's watched you on all these shows. And there's so many people that want to get into this industry, but I want to take you back. I want to take it back to where, when you were coming up, give us a little something of, of where did you grow up? Mom and dad, give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, right outside New York City. I was born in New York. We moved to California for a little while when my dad was working there as a reporter for Life magazine. Then we moved to Hong Kong uh, hmm. for three years. Hmm. Uh, my dad was the bureau chief for the Vietnam War coverage for Life. And we moved back to the States in the early 70s. Uh, and I grew up there. And one of the first things I remember coming back to the States was one of the first Monday night football appearances by the Cowboys. And my mom and dad are both from Texas. My mom's from Texarkana. My dad's from San Antonio. I have relatives that Darren knows all over the mm-hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I became a Cowboys fan because the first football game I ever saw on TV was a Monday night football game involving the Cowboys. And my parents were from Texas and, you know, the star and the helmet. And, you know, they were winning all the time. So it, it made it kind of easy. That's how I grew up a Cowboys fan in the state of Connecticut, born in New York City. Um, but, you know, we grew up there, and I went to high school there. My high school quarterback, by the way, was a guy you might have heard of. His name was Steve Young. Uh, he <laughs> Never had, heard of him. Pretty good career. Yeah. <laughs> and, and get this, it gets better. The woman he dated in high school, the name you won't remember, but her name was Christy Fitchner. And in 1986, Christy Fitchner, among other people, beat out someone called Halle Berry. For the title of Miss USA, and went oh wow, wow, Miss Universe. So the power couple at our high school was future Hall of Famer Steve Young and future Miss USA and runner-up Miss Universe Christy Fitchner. The rest of us never had a chance. Oh man, (laughs) was over. Who was voted most likely to succeed at that high school? I wonder. Yeah, there were a few of them. Uh, (laughs) A lot of them with threes and fours after their names. So you said you, you lived in Hong Kong for a little bit? What, yeah, how old were you really, then? I was really young. Okay. I was like nursery school, kindergarten, those kind of, those kind of years. But you know, I, re- I remember certain things about it as, as being an absolute blast. We had a lot of fun. 
how, you said you were in you were third third or fourth grade. What the hell did you say? Nursery school. Oh, nursery. Grade. Grade. Oh, okay. Okay. So do you remember much about it at all? A little bit, you know, yeah. pieces here or there. But um, you know, I, I remember that my dad would leave every once in a while uh, and be away for a few weeks, and my mom would cry. And I'm like, why are you crying? Because you know he'd go into the bush, right, and be covering the war. And in fact, one of his the photographers actually that his helicopter was shot down once they were there, and, and he was killed. So wow. mm. you know, my dad, my dad did the damn thing uh, covering the Vietnam War. And uh, as I got older, I really had more of appreciation for what he was doing and, and the fact that he did it and he was able to come back. Is that what do, what took you into journalism? Was that your father? You watched him through yeah. this process? A, a little bit, you know. Whenever we had a teacher in service day when I was a kid in like elementary school, I would go in to work with my dad, and, and he worked right across. The Time Life Building in New York City was right across from Rockefeller Center uh, and Radio City Music Hall in New York. So I would go down and, and go in to work with him, take the train in to, to New York from Greenwich, which everybody did. And, uh, you know, I, I'd sort of ride around the halls, and I'd be like a copy boy for the, for the magazine. He's like, hey, take, these, take this stuff over here to this guy to get approved and do this and do that. And uh, it was fun. You know, it was interesting. You know, a lot of my friends' dads were lawyers and bankers and real estate guys. And this was a really interesting and unique career that I thought was pretty cool. So I always thought, yeah, that would be something fun I'd want to try. And I just always loved sports. I wasn't any good at it, but I always loved sports. So uh, for me, I wanted to try and do something along those lines in sports. So at what age did you decide, okay, hey, journalism's the route I want to go. I want to follow the sports path. Was it high school, college? I mean, obviously you're around it, but when did you say, okay, hey, that's the mission that I'm going to pursue? Yeah, I thought about it a lot in high school. We had a pretty good uh, media department for that time in the early 80s. And we, I did some high school college basketball, I mean, high school basketball games and football games. And, you know, we broadcast those. We had a weekly sports show that we did on, we did in, on the in-house, you know, uh, circuit on the on in high school and then i went to college and threw all that out the way i mean i i i changed i went to baylor and i changed my major i think five times i started out as a journalism major then went radio tv then broadcast then speech and then communication specialist because i did i didn't i, I was going to be a speech major i needed another lab science and i wasn't sticking around <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I can safely say that I had a lot of fun at Baylor, and I, I still a lot of my friends that some that Darren, yeah, California, uh, I I still hang out with, but I I did not take the academic portion as seriously as a lot of other. Trey, players. you say I, like you weren't I enjoyed an, my time. <laughs> you say you weren't an athlete, but that sure is an athlete's route through college. Okay, <laughs> what are the least amount of tough classes I can take <laughs> to get through this? I, listen. I always thought like an athlete just didn't have the body. <laughs> I know you said you had family in Texas, but what led you to Baylor coming from the Northeast like that? Well, it's interesting. My whole, my whole family from, went to Baylor. My dad and mom oh, okay. went there. Uh, you know, my, my sister went there. Cousins went there. We had a few that went to TCU in Texas. Most everybody went to Baylor. So it was a family thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just, that's where we went. Yeah. That's cool. Okay, so so you get your communication specialist major. What's yeah. what's next? Where do you go? What's what's work? Like, okay, hey, real life hits. Now, you know, I'm I'm done with my fun time at Baylor. Now I got to go yeah. earn a living. Well, I decided I didn't want to work in the business because I, I didn't want didn't want to work weekends and nights. So I got a job in Washington D.C. as a uh, account executive for a PR firm, and it was my job to like make sure. For example, one of our clients was the Ford Motor Company, and they were mm. sponsoring this 
exhibit of the great Mexican muralist Diego Rivera. And it was my job to make sure, if you're talking about the, the exhibit that, uh, well, that Ford Motor Company is putting up of Diego Rivera, make sure you mention, hey, you know, it's brought to you by the Ford Motor Company <laughs> and that sort of stuff. But I find myself going into my office. Yeah, I have an office right out of school. Great. Um, going into my office and like shutting the door and just reading the sports pages and not really taking work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I figured I, I, I might want to try and get back into the sports thing. So I, I moved back home to, to Greenwich and lived in my parents' basement and got a job as a, as a page at NBC at 30 Rock. And literally like... As a... Wait, wait, wait. Go back on that. You said as a what? Page. P-A-G-E. Okay, what's a page? 30 Rock on NBC. Yes. You ever see this? Yes. Yeah, Jack, the guy in the, in the Blue Blazer, yes. that was me. Wow. We gave guided tours of the building. I got to work on Saturday Night Live and uh, got to work on a bunch of other shows. And, you know, I eventually got to do some producing for NBC News and I, I put some sports clips together for their morning news show. And then I got on the set and made a demo tape and sent that out and uh, got a job in Binghamton, New York. as my first on-air job in June of 1988. No, tell us, well, listen, well, first of all, I'm going to go back. When did you know that you had to gift a gap? That's a great question. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd love to say I always knew, but, I, you know, I just wanted to try. Like, I, I had another offer. You'll like this, Darren. You'll appreciate this. Um, as when I was a page at NBC, I got an offer uh, because of my dad knew somebody uh, named Mark McCormick who founded IMG. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the first real sports marketing agency and he wrote all those books you know everything the harvard business school does to teach whatever right. so i got an interview with mark uh and he said they offered me a job in their sports marketing and licensing department where i would go where i would represent like wimbledon clothing and cross pens and all this kind of stuff and and uh you know i was they offered me the job and i was going to take it and then i was like you know i really want to try this other thing if i don't try it now i may never try it don't try it. I'll be mad that I didn't try it. So I turned him down. And to this day, I'm probably the only guy that turned down Mark McCormick. Mm. And so that started me doing the other things and, and getting involved in that. But long story short, um, years, years later, Sandy Montag, who was yeah. working for us, the sports agent, called me. And at one point, they represented me. So it, it was kind of fun mm. that like I was going to work for them as a sort of a, a grunt salesman and then all the years later by turning them down and doing what I really wanted to do was you know, doing stuff on air they ended up representing me and I, I I like that story because it reminds me you know just if you if you pursue what you really want to do you can do it and sometimes things really come full, full circle in a really strange way yeah. Trey let's let's yeah let's park it park it right there for a second uh, we're really big on pursuing passion and pursuing what you feel like your purpose is um, at a at a young age, a young adult, you made the decision to pass on something that hey could be a lucrative sales career with an up and coming company, yeah. or hey, I'm going to take a risk on myself and I'm going to take maybe the scarier path, but pursue what I'm passionate about. At that age, how did you weigh those out, and how did you make those that decision, and you know, pr and make obviously the career that you've made? Yeah, for me, I, I knew I had to try. It was an age, you know, like I. I it wasn't an X is an O thing. It wasn't a, a um, well, let's weigh the pros and cons. Although you, you do that a little bit. You write stuff down on paper. 
Um, but I, I knew that if I didn't give it a shot, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. And I guess I figured since it was, I was 23 when I first got that offer from them. But I, if that was going to be the case, I'm, I'm sure I could find something. But I knew that if I didn't try, it wasn't that I was going to succeed. But I knew if I didn't try it, at least give it a shot, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to be one of those guys who turns 40 and has a comfortable life and is, you know, doing okay and all this kind of stuff, but didn't really take a shot at what he wanted to do. So that was it for me. And it wasn't, I'd love to say it was an analytical and it was a deep thinking process. And I just knew that I had to try. And, and if I didn't listen to that voice inside of me, I would have regretted it forever. So, um, that, that was it more than anything else. Like other people might have looked at it more scientifically or analytically. I just knew that I, 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 would, I would be beating myself up forever if I didn't at least give it a shot. So you talk about the voice inside you, you know, saying I would regret it if I didn't. But you were also living at home. Was there any other voices of guidance that you had at that time? Or was there a mentor that you looked to that helped you? Or was that, hey, Trey, you, you got to make this, this decision on your own? Well, I knew I had to make it on my own, but obviously I talked to my parents and I talked to my dad, who obviously, you know, he had a very similar story. Like when he graduated from Baylor, he was working at the San Antonio Light, which was a local newspaper at that time. And it was a good job. You know, it was a good paper, pretty good size town. But at that point, he felt like um, the center of the universe in terms of journalism was New York City. So he talked to one of his professors at Baylor who told him, go up, go up to New York City. If you go up, look for this name. So. He left, his, uh, he left his wife and my sister, I think, at that time, who was very young. Or no, maybe she wasn't born yet. I'm not sure. One of those things. I'll, I'll, get it, I'll figure it out. Um, and basically said, I got to go up to New York to drive. So he, he took a train ride up to New York, got his room at the YMCA in New York City, and walked into the Time Life building with a name on a piece of paper and said, I'm looking for so-and-so. And the receptionist said, well, he's not here. And he started to walk out the door and said, well, thank you very much. And the lady said, wait, are you looking for a job? And he said, yes. And she said, well, that's not the person you want to talk to at all. Here's the name of the person you want to talk to. So he gave her, he gave him the right name. And then he got an, in, from that initial talking to that guy, he got an in-house uh, interview and an in-house job at the, like the, in, the inside the, the magazine publication, not for print, but just what goes around to the you know, the people inside the building, and he parlayed that into a reporting job and eventually the bureau chief and everything else that came wow. with it. Awesome. You know, I, I guess it was because that's what my dad did. You know, he decided I got to try it. And But it just shows you also, like, I'd love to say, you know, it was all this that I had to do. If that one guy or that one receptionist hadn't said to my dad, hold up, this is the wrong person. You need to talk to somebody else. I don't know what would have happened. Mm. And, and he doesn't know what would have happened. So, you know, I, I, well, I, I did listen to my, my inner voice that you said, nobody's a self-made man. They don't exist in my, in my mm. belief. Mm. You want to believe in yourself, you want to try, but everybody gets a helping hand and a little gift along the way. That receptionist was my dad's gift, and I had a couple of guys like that that helped me along the way, but I would not have made it to where I wanted to be without their help. Yeah, yeah so, so your, your first day in front of the camera. You always talk that shit about me being in front of the camera. I know you. <laughs> what was <laughs> tell looking us like what a baby you, giraffe? Up there. <laughs> That's just awkward. What was your first day in front of the camera like? Horrendous. <laughs> I, I look at the like. First of all, I look at the demo tape I made. I'm like, how did anybody hire me? And then, like, the, the station I was at at Binghamton was so tiny and so small 
we didn't even have a teleprompter. We had like two reporters, a weatherman, a news anchor, and a sports anchor, which I was. So you had to shoot all your own video, do all your own editing, and then there was no teleprompter. Now, and, and that was terrifying back in the day. As it turns out, it was the greatest. Absolutely. Teaching. It was the yeah. greatest teaching that, yeah. the skill in the world because, as Darren will tell you, you know, I, I didn't use the telephone never which was amazing i mean this i I don't want to we're gonna go back to your story but i gotta interrupt here it would amaze me the fact that trey could see something his photographic memory yeah so he could see something one time no teleprompter he can just read something and then go off of like three different paragraphs and remember it it was i mean i don't know how many people are on the set every time someone new came on the set a new analyst, they would sit there and go, how the, how the hell did he do that? And I was like, man, I don't know. I've been watch, watching this Watch this crazy. trick. Yeah, watch this trick. <laughs> so no, go ahead. I mean, like, it, it, was, it was legit terrifying because you're just trying to get through it without screwing up. But, it, but it, was, it turned out to be great for me. It was really a good practice. It was another example of what turning a negative situation into something positive. And it was, believe me, it was negative for a while. <laughs> but it, 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 it helped me. It really did. And... Um, so, you know, I, I, at the time, it was the worst thing in the world. But again, I was very thankful for it in the long run because it just made it easier for me to, to do that and not worry about that and have that as something that I was dependent on. So how did you work through that in the moment? Because it's easy to look back now and say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. We, we all do that. But in the moment, as you're going through the thick of it, what are you telling yourself? How are you getting through that of, of just working through that situation? Because you have no other choice, right? I mean, it's like, swim or sink, sink or swim, survive or die. I mean, there, there was you were just going to get through it one way or the other. And you know, television is a lot like football in the sense that, you know, it's about rest. It's about repetition. And the more you can do it, the more comfortable you feel. You know, the more the more times you take those drops as a safety or a cornerback and flip those dips, the easier it becomes. And, you know, reading routes and understanding where people are going, it's really the same thing. There's a great book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. Mm-hmm. And it's only yep. about 110 pages. But basically the premise is that nobody is really great. It's doing the same thing a thousand or 10,000 times that makes people great. And it also talks about happenstance and luck and being in the right place at the right time. Like one of the examples of Bill Gates' best friend and his only friend when he was growing up, I think, in the late 60s and early 70s, was a buddy of his whose dad was the president of a new division of computer technology at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he, they had one of the biggest supercomputers of all time on campus. I think it was Michigan. And, and, and you know, he had access to it. So he had, he had the, the interest and he had the access to it that nobody else had. He could have been successful doing a million other things, but because he had access and had access to the rest, uh, it made him into what he became in terms of the computer world and the computer technology world. Yeah, so you talk about you had no choice. You just you – just, now, I totally understand what you're saying, but I, I, would, I would argue you did have a choice, but why was it so important to push through that for you? What was the overall arching goal? Why was it so important to you to push through that? Well, I mean, I, 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 I was making like 10 grand, you know, and we were barely getting by. I mean – you know, when my parents would come up to visit us like, for our birthday, they'd go and fill up the grocery cart. I mean, mm. we, we, were, we were struggling, man. You <laughs> were know, you with Janice like, at the time? Were, were, were you? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was married. Yeah. I was married at the time. Yeah. Um, I got no choice, you know. Yeah. Right. We got to find a way to make this. So, 
you know, Janice was working at the, at the Gap as a manager, making some money, and I was trying to do this thing. And, you know, there were times where I, I I'm not going to lie to you, I'm wondering, what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it wasn't easy, but I just, I wasn't going to quit until I felt like I had given it a fair shot. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I, I had to, I had to go as far as I thought it could go before I needed to pull the plug. You know, in terms of talking to people like your brother, your friend, your son's friend, Darren, you know, don't let anybody tell you when it's over. You decide when it's over for yourself. You, you decide when this isn't worth it for me. Because there, there was going to be a point for all of us at that, you know, whether it's football mm-hmm. or what I was mm-hmm. doing, that at some point the risk wouldn't be worth the potential reward. But I hadn't gotten there. And I was going to run that out until I possibly could. And I was going to let it be my decision, not somebody else's. Like, don't let anybody else tell you when yeah. the journey is over. Yeah. That's when you need to make that decision. I love hearing that. That's so encouraging because you see Trey Wingo and you think ESPN and you just think, I don't know, for whatever reason yeah. in your mind, you just think he just he just got there. Like, yeah. you, don't, you don't see the work. You don't see – that's why I love this podcast and I love stories because you get to hear that you struggle too. You're just like us. Oh. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, not, yeah. you're not better than anybody else necessarily. You just work through that stuff. I take it even. I got fired from that job because I went down to interview for another job, and I took a day off from work, and I called in sick, and someone said, "Don't worry, I'll cover for you," and they didn't. (laughs) I I got back and I got fired. So I'm I'm now unemployed, in my early twenties, married, and getting like unemployment insurance in Binghamton, New York, Mm. thinking, "What the hell am I doing?" Oh man, my friends are you know graduating from law school and you know getting these nice cushy six-figure jobs and all this kind of stuff and i'm taking a bus to another different station trying to put a demo tape together because mm-hmm. the station i work at the equipment is so bad you can't even look at the videotape so you know it was there were some moments man i'm not gonna lie to you but at the end of the day if you really believe in it and if you really if you really want to do it you just have to push through those moments yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about a little bit about comparisonitis is my thought when yeah. you're saying your buddies are yeah. having these successful jobs it seems like everybody's doing so well except for me so for yeah. you personally how did you work through that how, how did you keep that tunnel vision of hey i'm not worried about what so-and-so is doing yeah they're doing great but i'm not worried about that i'm worried about me you know i'd love to say i had tunnel vision but i did worry about it, <laughs> sure you know and it and maybe it drove me a little bit. I don't know because, you know, the friends that I was talking about that I still hang out with from Baylor, they were doing really well at a much earlier age than I was. And I was like, crap, man, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the low man here. I don't, I don't want to be the black sheep. I want to be the one guy that sucks at life. You know? <laughs> sucks at life. <laughs> Competition is a real thing. It's mm-hmm, a real yeah. thing. And I'm not saying it was the only thing, but that was part of it. You know, you, no one wants to be the dude that wasn't the dude. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yep. Yeah, competition, man. I, that, that's so that, true. That dog in you. It's the about. dog in yeah. you, man. It's it's that driving force that you have. Okay, so you're in in Bingham, New York. What? End, okay, you end up getting fired. What's the next huh? step? You end up getting you're right. So I got another job at another station part time just so I can keep doing stuff. And I sent out uh, tapes, and then like four months later, I got a job in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Now. You may not say to yourself, what's the difference between Allentown, Pennsylvania and Binghamton, New York? And you would be correct. <laughs> it was another job, and it is a job that included doing play-by-play for Lehigh University basketball yeah. uh-huh. and football. So along with doing the, the nightly newscast, uh, you know, uh, 
And by the way, I, I should say this, like my, when we were in college and still to this day, one of my favorite local sports guys, Dale Hansen. Dale Hansen mm. was one of the reasons that I wanted to get in the business because I think it was freaking hilarious. <sighs> and, I, and I just loved the way he went about his business. And, you know, to this day, I, I still like to see Dale and things he's doing, which I think are remarkable. But, you know, uh, so I got a chance to do that and, and do some play-by-play uh, for college football and college basketball, which, again, was my first attempt at that. And some of it was good and some of it was horrendous. But I was only there for nine months. And then I got my next Air Force big break, which was a job in St. Louis, Missouri, mm. which was, a, you know, it had an actual pro team and all this kind of stuff. And. It would have the Cardinals and it had the Blues and big time college football and college basketball. So that was really, really fun. And we were there for six years. Uh, and then I got the job at ESPN in 1997 and I've been here ever since. Okay, so there we go. That's where I want to get to. So what was that call like? Because uh, did you send your tapes to, to ESPN or did they come out re- looking for you? Well, that was weird, right? Because I was there at, in, at St. Louis for less than a year. And uh, I came back from doing an assignment about a high school track team, I think. I don't know. And I got a note on my desk that said, call Al Jaffe at this number. It was a 203 area code. Well, being from Connecticut, I know 203 at that point was Bristol. Connecticut. So I'm calling Al Jaffe. I'm like, Al Jaffe, Al Jaffe, how do I know this name? And then I realized, oh, my God, he's the talent recruiter for ESPN. And I had not sent them a tape. Somebody else, we think, had sent them a tape. Hmm. and said, hey, you might want to take a look at this guy. And so they said, hey, we'd like to bring you up for an interview and all this kind of stuff. And the legal part of it, I think you'll find interesting, they said, but are you under contract? I said, well, yes, I am. They said, well, the only way we can talk to you is that if your station will allow us to to, to talk to you so it won't be tortious interference in the contract. Um, So I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I went to the folks. At, at my local station there, and they said, hey, ESPN wants to talk to me, but they need you're okay with it because I had like a year left on my, or a year and a half left on my contract. And they were like, yeah, no, we can't let you do that because if we do that for you, we'd have to do it for everybody. But it's ESPN. No. You realize this is my dream. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I couldn't do the interview, and I couldn't get up there. And um, so I, you know, I said no. And then they called again a couple of years later, and I was at a couple of years of later. And I was like, yeah, a couple of years later, oh, like man. three or four years later. And I was like, I don't care. I'm leaving. I'm going. So you guys can do whatever you want. So I, I did the interview and went up and did a demo tape up there. And like a month later, they called and offered me the job. That's oh. awesome. So was, was ESPN the pinnacle for you? Yeah. Was that, was, was, that, was that like what you know, thought about? It, it, yeah. Like, again, growing up, I remember watching ESPN when I was first coming home to college. Mm. And it was like Australian rules football and and softball and, you know, tra- tractor poles and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, what the hell is this, man? But, it, it, you know, it was intriguing. It was interesting. And the idea to do sports all the time, obviously, was something I was interested in. So, yeah, like, the goal was to one day work at ESPN. And, you know, 23 years later, I've been here for almost a quarter of a century. So who was the guy before you got to ESPN? I know you, you saw all the anchors up there. What was the big show back then? That was Dan and Keith, for sure. That was the 11 o'clock show. Right. 11 o'clock sports center with, with Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. But, like, for me, when I was in St. Louis, Chris Berman would come down every once in a while and do, uh, do you know, baseball games, do Cardinals games. Mm-hmm. And so I got to meet him a couple times in the press box. And, like, one of my first weeks 
at ESPN. I was in the bathroom because, of course, every great story starts. With that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was washing my hands, and Boomer came in, and I just had to say, "Hey, Chris, it's Trey Wingo. We met." He goes, "Yeah, you were the one that told me about the Cheddar Smokies, which was kind of a hot dog at the uh, at Bush Stadium uh, Park." And I'm like, "It can't, uh, yeah, it's at the old Cardinal Stadium." I'm like, yeah, like he remembered wow. huh. coming up and saying hi to him, and I'll never forget that about him. It was great. So, you know, that was one of the first guys that I met when I was there, and that was really, really a lot of fun. All right, so so you get the job at ESPN. Now, what is 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 it just a whole nother level? I mean, you're okay. We're I'm, I'm at local stations doing sports anchor. I was doing some play by play stuff, but like you get in and like, do you re, do you recognize in that moment I'm in the big show? Like this is it. And and how did yeah. you react to that in either preparation, execution? How did that go for you? Well, you know, it's that competitive thing again, right? You 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 don't want to be left behind because as someone once said about ESPN, we got a lot of show ponies in the stadium. You know, and they're right. They do. There's people there were what's called iron sharpens iron, right? right. There, there were a lot of guys that wanted to do really well there. So um, it was, it was, it, no doubt it was, it was competitive. And uh, I enjoyed that part of it. But you also, again, you didn't want to get left behind. You know, you wanted to make sure that you were there and doing the things you wanted to do and, and, and get out there. And, and for me, honestly, um, the, by far, the, the thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to work in the NFL. It's mm-hmm. always been my favorite mm-hmm. sport. It's not even close. It's not a debate. Like for me, football and specifically the NFL has always been the thing that I've enjoyed more than anything else. So, you know, for, honestly, no matter what I've done prior and what I do going forward, the 15 years that I spent on NFL Live and the draft over the last, you know, I've hosted all four rounds or all three days rather the last four years and doing being involved with it for, you know, 15 years. That has been the most fun for me mm. all the way around. Yeah, so, so when you get to ESPN, a lot of people start off at on news. Did you start off on – walk us through the process. You went through news, and then yeah. from there, what did you ESPN jump? News, and every once in a while, you get, like, a, a really big, like, sign that things were going well was you get to do the 1 a.m. Sports Center on Friday or Saturday. Mm. <laughs> Moving no, on up. No, <laughs> no one wanted to do the 1 a.m. Sports Center on Friday or Saturday night. Because, you know, you stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning and then you wake up the next day feeling groggy and all that kind of stuff. But that was like a hat set. Okay? Things were going well. There, mm-hmm. And that was a good sign. So I did some of those. And then I got, uh, uh, they, they put me on a rotation with Baseball Tonight, which was a big program at that time. A lot of eyeballs on that one. So that was good. Um, and then they I got on the 6 o'clock sports center. And I was the host of the 6 o'clock sports center from 2000 through uh, October of 2002. Uh, and Bob Lee and I were the only ones that did Sports Center after 9/11 for a week. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, that was a, a unique week on a lot of levels in a lot of different ways. Um, and then uh, I was moved to the NBA uh, in 2002. And I, you know, I went into it and I said, "Look, I'm, I, I just, I mean, thank you for this, but this is not really what I'm about. And I'd really like to try and figure something else out." And then they. They started NFL Live in 2003, and I was on the host of NFL Live from 2003 all the way through the 2017 season, and it was awesome. Yeah. Mm. You know, something, something we talk about is I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I accomplish this, or I'll be happy when I'm making that, or whatever, whatever that is for you. And so it sounds like the, the goal was ESPN, but then when you get there, it's, no, I want to work in the NFL. And so yeah. it, it's almost like the goalpost, as we talk about, keeps moving. The, the goal continues. It, it's... You never get to a point 
we don't feel like you never get to a point where you've made it like that's it i'm done and so for you it sounds like when you got there it was like no now the goal is nfl is that yeah 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 yeah. i mean yeah exactly like and i think you know that's a great analogy the goalpost is always moving because that's life right i mean the goalpost is always moving in life you never want to get to the point uh, well, it's, it's, you guys ever, I, I don't know if you did. You guys ever see the movie Broadcast News that came out in the late 80s? It was no. about the news industry. It was really good. Well, movie. Ben wasn't born yet, yeah, so. I was, I was just being produced. <laughs> there's, there's, a, yeah, there's, a, there's a line in it from a really nervous reporter who says, I think I'm slipping, but do I think I'm slipping only because the good ones are always concerned that they are slipping and they just want to make sure they're not slipping, or am I really slipping? And I, you know, <laughs> mm, I, uh, I think that's sort of the attitude you always have to take going forward. Like, am I still doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Am I keeping it going forward? And you know, it, it, it's like it's like when you're trying to win a Super Bowl, you won the first one, right? Well, cool, but I don't want to stop at one. I want to win the next one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first one they say is always sweetest, but after that, they always say the answer is the next. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Next one is the most satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way, you know, I sort of approached it here. And I think that's the way a lot of people approach it. Talk, talk about the, the really tough time at ESPN when there was the massive layoff, right? When, when yeah. sports media changed. Talk about that mindset that you had going through that. One, you know, maybe, okay, hey, it, it, they're cutting people that we never thought were going to get, were going to get let go. Am I on that chopping block? But then, two, to see some of your best friends for years, you know, be let go. What was that experience like for you? It was really hard, like really, really hard. Uh, you know, a lot of really close friends of mine uh, were out the door, and you know, all of us were on like, like you, you like, I think I'm good. You know, I don't know, but I, <laughs> I think I'm good. Uh, and then when you hear the list of people, it was hard, and that was right around, by the way. The, the start of my time doing the draft. That was in April of 2017. So I'm preparing for this massive undertaking of the draft. And, you know, at the same time, you're just hearing all these things that are going on and what may or may not happen. And you're, you're just like, you know, you have to put the blinders on. You have to sort of mm-hmm. say, okay, I, I got a job to do, so I'm going to focus on this. Uh, and uh, that's the only way I can sort of get through it. So mm-hmm. that, that was part of it. Um, but it was hard. Like, I saw a lot of good friends and good people who I thought were terrific at what they did <clears throat> walk out the door. And, and that was, that was difficult. A lot of guys that I worked with a lot of years on NFL live, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Schlereth, his, his contract was actually up at that time. And, you know, Merrill Hodge, Ron Jaworski, guys oh. that I'd worked a lot of years with Ed Werder, one of the great yeah. reporters mm-hmm. who's back with us now. Um, that was a really, really difficult time. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, the old line from Bill Belichick, do your job, figure oh, it out, wow. and, and we'll go forward from Yeah, there. you breezed over that really nicely. Uh, but I saw you uh, in that time, and it hurt you. Because, you know, for a guy like me, I'm, I'm in and out. Um, the analyst, we go in, and we're there for two or three days, and then we're back out. Trey, you were there. And you had had so much time and so many relate deep relationships. And I remember coming in one day and it was, it, we were in a green room and you weren't your normal self. And it was because of those layoffs, man. So it just, it just showed you it, it's be, it was beyond uh, TV brother. It was deep friendships that were lost in that time. It was look, I mean, like Merrill Hodge came to my 40th birthday party out of the pool. You know, Darren Woodson showed up. Yeah. To come to my birthday yeah. party. <laughs> yes, sir. Uninvited. You know? Of course. <laughs> 
like Mark Flair, for whatever reason, we just hit it off. Yeah. You know, we, for 13 years, we worked together for 12 years. And, and he was like my work wife. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we were boys. Like we, we, we would see each other an off season, do all that stuff. It was, it was really, really difficult because those were guys that I had built a long standing work and personal relationship with. You know, it's funny. I, I had one person who was, didn't get cut in that time. He said, it's weird. You know, I see people freaking out about this, but then you, Darren, you can relate to this. This is what happens in an NFL locker room every season. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. You guys know Never safe. every year you guys come in knowing there will be some guys that were here last year that weren't there. Right. And while we covered the sport, we didn't have that experience like that. And so when that happened, it was just, it was just, you know, he was like, I, I get it. I'll give you an example. Okay. I went, I was at Wimbledon that summer, I think. And, uh, one of the, one of the tennis players, Betsy Maddox Sands, who actually is a friend of mine, actually, so one of the best doubles players in the United States, um, blew out her knee mm. you know, on the Wimbledon court. I mean, it bent backwards, bent the wrong way. You know, they, they had to call an ambulance. Everybody in tennis was freaking out because it was a gruesome injury. And yes, I was like, it was a gruesome injury, but in my mind, I'm like, like I see one of these every week in the mm. NFL. Yeah. So I was, I was processing it differently than everybody was on the tennis level because it was a extremely rare injury in tennis. And thankfully, Bethany's gone on to win the last two mixed doubles championships at the U.S. Open, so she's totally come back and kicked ass. But much in the same way, like we were processing it differently than uh, former NFL players would because that's something that was just part of their reality mm -hmm. every year. So that, that, that's a perfect transition because I've been wanting to ask this question. Like Darren and I had very different careers. And we've, we've said it on the show, like he never went to the facility wondering if he was going to have a job the next day. Whereas I spent six years in the NFL every day, it was like, all right, what do I got to do to keep my job today? Like I've got to do something to show my value. So when you first got to ESPN, you talked about the competitive culture. Was there a point where you were like, hey, I mean, I've got to, I've got to continue to show my value. And then also, was there a point where you're like, okay, I'm comfortable now. I've got a job. There's some security here. Now I'm free to be the best that I can be. Right. There's two, there's two, there's survival mode. And then there's like, okay, I'm going to excel and become Cowboys leading all, you know, all time tackler. Right. Bring a, uh, bring a fame dude, all, yeah. bring of honor dude. Um, you know, look, I, I don't think you can ever let go of that, that first part, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it should always sort of be nipping at your heels a little bit. You never want to be too comfortable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and look, I guess, like for me, like thirty plus years into the into the business now, and twenty three years in, I'm certainly more comfortable than I would be at other times. But you know, you never want to just be too complacent, for yeah. lack of a better term. Right. You know, but but you do like things change. Like I remember the first time I messed up, and I got to tell this story. You love this. <laughs> I thought my career was over. You, know, when you messed up something. Like one of the first times I got to do the old one a.m. sports center during the week, which was the thing that re-aired all morning. You know, you went on at 1 a.m. And, and was on until 2 o'clock in the afternoon the next day. All anybody saw on ESPN was your face doing the highlights. And I've written this story about John Daly, uh, who, was, who was at the Players' Championship at Pontevedra in Sagra. Yeah, legend year, here in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, the year before, he had, you know, got gotten hammered and, you know, really messed up and, and tore up his condo. And really, that was his first cry for help. And so that was, he went through AA and, and a year later he was back at the Players' Championship. And 
and right before he teed off, he got you know you get those coins from AA signifying how long you've been sober. And I wrote this poignant lead in about right before he teed off, a year after the disaster, he got this coin that signified one year of being free of alcohol. For whatever reason, it came out of my mouth. He, he got his coin signifying one year of free alcohol. And I thought, well, that's it for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a good run for this one year. Oh. It's been a tremendous ride. Uh, you know, and obviously we had to fix that for the rear, but I was like, oh my God, I just ruined my food. Oh. Um, so, you know, um, that part of it, that dealing with that part of it changes over time. Like if I mess up something now, it's like, well, I screwed that up. We're moving on. <laughs> yeah. That part does change a little mm. bit, but you never, you know, you still want to be on edge a little bit all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's just, there's something, and, we, and again, we've talked about it. There's the freedom to not have that creep in the back of your mind. Like I'm not going to have a job tomorrow. Now my focus can be on how can I become the best version of myself that I possibly can. So there's something there. All right, so let's take it like back to just kind of ESPN because one thing Darren talks about a lot is just the personalities that are yeah. in there, right? You've got athletes, you've got journalists. Um, I mean, you've got all of the staff within ESPN. From what I hear, the better conversations definitely come off air in the green room. So I want to I want to hear over your career there since '97, who is who is the funniest personality uh, that you've worked with? Uh, who's the most abrasive? <laughs> yeah, let's and go then, through this. Let's go funniest then, first. Let's just go funniest then, yeah, first. Okay, all right. Who's the funniest? Well, Kenny Maine is just insane. Yes. And for years, like we did the 1 a.m. Sports Center for a while, and like they had to break us up because I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. Like he's an insane person in the best possible way. And then we also did the 6 o'clock show together for a year and a half. So like, Kenny would would absolutely be that person for me but what's really weird about espn you know we're on all the time but unless you're on the same shift with somebody you can literally go years without seeing like wow. you know when, when i was on the when i was on the uh the overnight shift i would just see the people that were on the overnight shift and you know when i was doing the six o'clock show you'd see people that were there during the day and, and you're leaving and now you know with the mornings that i've been on and you know if you're not on in the mornings i'm out the door except for days i was doing nfl live i'd be out the door by 10 30 11 o'clock in the morning so you could literally know someone and be there with them for years and not see them uh, for a long long time because based on the timing of when your show was on the air so mm. kenny would absolutely be that guy for me most abrasive i'm not going throw Darren under the bus if you don't want to answer just say Darren which one of your teammates was you know bought the most illegal booze you want him in alphabetical order I I can give it to you in alphabetical order Uh, well listen I will say this though I I shared the set with with Trey and Mark Schlereth for god how many years 10 years whatever it was it was comedy central I don't know how we got through some of those shows. We would come off commercial breaks, dying laughing, and then Trey would go from dying laughing to right into just it. The professional, yeah. True and then I look at look at we call him Stink. I look at Stink, and he's just like straight there as professionals, and I'm still dying. Like I, I, Trey, talk about the time I, we we were talking about something, and I'm laughing in the background, and you're trying to he's trying to read through talk. 
And I'm laughing in the background. Oh, He's God. hitting me. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I take it one step further. And this is still on YouTube. You can find it, all right? This was the Jamarcus Russell era where he had all his kinds of issues. And it turns out, as we know, Jamarcus had an issue with uh, some chemical issues and, and uh, working with uh, cough syrup. The, the thing that was referred to as purple drank. <laughs> so, Darren was dying laughing that this guy with this face from Greenwich, Connecticut was saying purple drink. going to have to say on the air, purple drink. Not purple drink, not player, not player, not player potion. I had to say purple drink. So I told him in the commercial break at a time, I'm going to lean into this. Why? <laughs> So, you know, I did a very serious lead in about, you know, Jamarcus Russell is facing this and that and all that because of the dependency with Purple Drank. <laughs> and I said it like that. And before they go to the sound bite of Jamarcus, where we're talking about it, you can hear Darren Woodson's background going, <laughs> <laughs> To this day, I think you can still find it on YouTube. Oh, we're looking it up. Purple Drank. Oh, oh, man. The <laughs> laugh in the background is Darren Woodson dying. At me. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is That's awesome. A, We're who, gonna find that for sure. Who are some of the guys that you looked up to oh. in your time there? Like, who did you look at and think, okay, that—that's the guy. That's the alpha around here. Yeah. Well, well, look from the from an anchor perspective, boom. Chris Berman was ESPN for so many years. Yeah. He did everything. You know, he did he did all the things that I would want to do. Like he did Sunday mornings. He did. Monday Night Football, he did the, the halftime of Monday Night Football, he did the draft, like, boom, was the guy, you know, so from anchors, for me, that was, that was who that was, and, like, you know, to this day, by the way, this is how great boom is, like, when, you know, when he was done with the draft, and I took over the draft, for four years in a row, right before we go on the air, I'll get a text from boom, hey, good luck, don't bleep it up, that's who he is, and he's awesome, but from, like, the analyst, like, the, I, I cannot express enough to you how much of a family atmosphere NFL Live was for me yeah. and the guys that I, I worked with all the years. Whether it was Darren or Teddy Bruschi or Mark Schlereth or Tim Hasselbeck or Jeff Saturday, who we call Fake Mark Schlereth, former you know, those guys, Herm Edwards, my guy. Oh, oh man, the nine years I spent yeah. with Herm, I cannot tell you how much fun we had. And I, it makes me so happy to know that, you know, Herm and, and Darren are now connected to Arizona State and the three of us are connected to our time at ESPN. Yeah. Like Herm and I, away from away from the facility, we would just have so many boondoggers. We'd go play golf places and Herm would call me his road dog. Yeah. Hey, Rody, where are we going today? Rody, what are we going to do? And whenever we'd be somewhere playing at a real nice golf course, Herm would look at me and say, Rody, Someone had to be us today. Might as well be us. <laughs> that was our motto. And the nine years that I spent with Herm were just like, I remember, because he's always saying, Yo, this is my last job, Rody. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm going back to that other stuff. This is my team forever. And then when he was going to take the Arizona State job, I texted him and said, hey, what's going on? And he texted me back, we'll talk. And I was like, well, he's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Soon, yeah. He you know, gone. As soon as he said, we'll talk, he said, like, no, don't worry about it, Rody. We're good. Or I'm not... As soon as he said, we'll talk, I'm like, damn, yeah. really losing. And, you know, his last day here was very emotional. Oh, yeah. Wore us you know, out, I think man. That's out there as well somewhere. But, yeah. you know, you're, not, you're never too old to be coached. 
You know, mm-hmm. he's never too old to be coached. And for a lot of years, Herm was my coach at ESPN, even though, you know, I'd been there a lot longer. And just the life lessons that I spent with him and just thinking about it now, it gets me a little bit. And, you know, so those people were, they're not, they weren't just guys that I worked with. They were family. They were, mm-hmm. they were people that I spent my time away. You know, like, I took my son and a couple of his friends to a Cowboys game in 2009 when the stadium opened. And you know what? We didn't stay at a hotel. Darren Woodson said, no, you're staying in my house. And he, we brought Chappie, myself, Chappie uh, and one of his friends, and we all crashed at Darren Woodson's house. We all went out to dinner at, what was it, uh, uh, what, what, it was the Del, was it Delmonico's? Del Frisco's. Del Frisco's. Yeah. I'm sorry, Del Frisco's. We all went out to dinner at Del Frisco's that night. Had yeah. a great time. I mean, we were family. You know what yeah. I mean? Dar- Darren came to my surprise 50th birthday party yeah. in West Hartford, along with everyone else that, uh, that uh, she invited. So it, it was, it was way more than just a working relationship for everybody on that show. And that's, it was just, it was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. You know, what's cool about that is I wonder how many people go through just their daily work life and they just can't stand who they work with. Yeah. And there's no camaraderie. There's no culture. It's just, they just go in there, they do their job and they go home. I just can't. So it sounds like you guys were, were much thicker than just coworkers. Yeah. And, and Well, I think there's more than that. It's almost like being in a locker room. It's like, there's a passion. First of all, there's a passion. And, and that's where it started. And it always, the guy who's going to start, Trey's the guy who's going to start it because he's the anchor. He's going to mm-hmm. lead. So then you have the analyst. And, and then there's their relationship, you know, going up, building the show. Because, you know, most of the time as an analyst, we're just sitting there, hanging out in the green room. We'll do some research. He's doing all Kinda the Kind of like what you do now. Yeah, exactly. When <laughs> Trey's doing all the heavy lifting. He's doing all the heavy lifting. When he comes in, he just, what do you always say? I'm just going to tee you up and you just... Swing for the fence. So that's, that was my job was always made easy. So he's like the team this. captain of, of, of the Elsie Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, I, I, you know, people come in there and they're telling point is look at this camera when you're doing this and talk over here. And I, I take them and say, Darren, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask you a question about football and you're going to ask it. And that's what we're going to do. And that's, <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to make it as easy for them as possible because when they're at ease, we, the viewer gets the best out of them, and that was the whole point of the damn show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're there, because they've been there, they've lived it, they've played it, they understand those tense moments, those, those championship situations where everything's on the line, and you have, you know, you, you, you just have to do it. And right. so what I wanted to do in my position was make sure I put the analysts that were with me in the best opportunity to succeed. So I said, mm-hmm. don't worry about the camera. Don't worry about any of that garbage. Don't listen to them telling you to look over here or do that. They'll follow you no matter what you do because you're Darren Bleeping Woods. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I'm going to ask you a question about football and you're going to answer it, and that's how this show's going to be. Right, and I think that's what people connect to, right? The realness, right? The transparency. Yeah. If it's rehearsed and polished all the time, like there's there's an unauthentic approach to that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, again, yeah. that's what it, it sounds like, and, and I'll go back to the community conversation, is that's what people strive for is that, is that community. And, and that's one of the things that sports brings us, mm-hmm. whether it's on the broadcasting side, whether it's on the team side, doesn't matter. There is something that brings that community to it. And I think as humans, we just strive for that. Well, and, and to that point, I mean, the way that you guys deliver the news and the sports, I mean, it's an escape for so many yeah. people mm-hmm. to come home from work and just turn on SportsCenter or turn on NFL Live. What you guys are doing up there, the way you deliver it, the way you go about your business is such a, a, a light for some people. Mm-hmm. And, and some, you know, in some cases, probably the best part of their day. And so it's just really cool to see and, and hear about the ins and outs of, of how it truly is and how much you guys love each other. 
So I, I got a question for you, man, and we're going to wind it down for you. But there's, I've watched you do all sports, every from tennis to baseball, I, you name it. What is it about football that when, when you start talking football, there is a serious passion for what about what is it about that game that that brings out that passion? For me, that's it's a very simple thing, and, and I, I hope that I can say this in the right way because to me, there are sports, there are team sports, and then there's one real team sport, and that is football. Because at the end of the day, like let's say baseball, okay, great game, but it's essentially a game between a pitcher and a hitter, and what happens between the pitcher and the hitter dictates everything else that goes around and, and what other players are involved. In basketball, you can have two really good guys, and sometimes that's enough to get you where you need to be at a championship. I've certainly seen that with LeBron James and what mm-hmm. he did with Cleveland when they came back from down 3-1. In a sport like hockey or soccer, you can have all these things, but if you've got a hot goalie, that changes everything. To me, football is the ultimate team sport. You have to have 11 guys pulling together on the same side of the ball, all on the same page, and if you don't, you have mayhem. You could have Patrick Mahomes, but if you don't have Tyree Hill or Travis Kelsey or Mitchell Schwartz on the offensive line, you're not getting anywhere. You can have the best cornerbacks in the world and a, a leading tackler for the Dallas Cowboys, safety and Darren Woodson, but if you don't have a pass rush, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because if they can't get to the quarterback, eventually the way the game is played, those guys are going to get free. So what I love about football is it eventually comes down to this in almost every scenario. One wall of men up front is going to dominate another wall of men, mm-hmm. and that will allow everything else to happen. Mm-hmm. It is the huddle. It is the line of scrimmage. It is the, the ability to walk across that sideline and that white stripe where you are a normal human being on one side of that sideline, and then you willingly step across that sideline to do things that you know you probably shouldn't be doing, but you do it anyway for the love of the game and the love of the teammates that you have around you. Mm. And that, to me, is the thing that makes football so much special, so much more special, and so much more unique than any other sport I've ever seen. Trey, is there a specific sports memory that you have that you were able to experience in person or cover that sticks out to you above the rest? Well, yeah. Look, I, I grew up a Cowboys fan. My dad was a Cowboys fan. I took my dad to all the sports tonight, and that was special to me because, you know, uh, he did a lot of things for me, and so I was able to get us tickets to all three of Darren's Super Bowl championships. Well, you made one of them a little more interesting than it needed. Yes, to be. yes, <laughs> true. What is it? W. It was a W. Kept that thing tight. That's all yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, that was for me. Like, take it one step further. Like my my dad covered, but he covered the first group. Okay, my dad covered the the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. He was in the Vietnam War covering that. He he covered Watergate. He did all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. For me to be able to take him to those games meant a lot, and. Uh, going to forgive me for a minute here, but uh, my son, Chapman, who played college football, uh, was a huge Peyton Manning fan, and in this neck of the world, uh, you don't see a lot of Peyton Manning fans, you see a lot of Tom Brady fans, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, where I live, and I, I took him to Super Bowl 48 thinking he's going to see Peyton get his ring, and obviously that was a disaster. <laughs> uh, they lost 43-8 to 
So two years later, we're at Super Bowl 50, and it was like, this is our last chance. You know, it's our last chance to do this, I think. And uh, to see him, to see him happy, seeing his, uh, his, his favorite player win a ring, mm. that meant a lot to me. That's yeah. awesome, man. That's yeah. amazing. So good. Yeah. So good. Thanks for sharing that, Trey. Yeah, that's my boy, Chap. Yeah, no. sorry, sorry for being a blubber. Don't be, no, don't be at all. It's, it's clear that it just means so much more than just the sport. Yeah. you know, it's it's so it's so much bigger than that. Yeah, it is. And it's a connection with other people. It's it's the bond that you form. It's with teammates, with you know, family, whatever. As you look forward, what what you know, you say you've been at ESPN for however many years. What, what keeps you going? What what do you look forward to? What excites you going forward? You know, that, that's a great question, and you, you ask it that self on a daily basis, and I think that's the challenge, right? The challenge is as long as you're doing it, find the thing that keeps you going. And so I think that's a constantly moving target. Like, for me, I've been able to do almost everything I could possibly imagine. Again. I covered the Olympics in Salt Lake City in 2002. I've covered PGA Championships. I've covered U.S. Opens in golf and British Opens in golf and U.S. Opens in tennis and Wimbledon in tennis and Super Bowls and drafts and Pro Bowls and all that kind of stuff. Uh, NBA Finals. You know, I've been to the NBA All-Star Game. I've, I've had literally an unbelievable run of things I've, I've been able to uh, cover here at ESPN. So you're always striving for that one thing that get, that keeps you going. And that's, I think, the constant thing that you have to search inside yourself because when that runs dry, then you say to yourself, well, what am I doing? You know, mm-hmm. and so that's the constant challenge. Keep looking for that next goal. Like you said, move the goalpost and, uh, and keep that thing that's going to keep you going forward. I love that. My wife and I were actually just talking about yesterday. Some people, it feel like, feels like have, have figured out the secret to life or the, they have the ticket of, you know, they figured it out. Like, like dude, perfect. I think about it. it's, mm-hmm. it's five buddies. They just hang out and make funny videos and, and they make a lot of money doing mm-hmm. it. And they've just figured it out. That's what I was thinking when I think of ESPN. Now, obviously there's a lot of work. But I think of you guys have, I mean, you guys have the ticket of just, it's an awesome, amazing job. You're passionate. You love what you do. And you get to talk about sports all day. And I just think that's so cool. So as we wrap this up and you look back, the, the big question that we like to ask at the end with every guest is, as you look back at your journey and your time, and you could go back and tell yourself one thing. Doesn't necessarily mean you go back and change anything, but if you go back and you can tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? I tell myself to believe in myself a little more because there were times where I was just like, am I, am I good enough? Am I doing this? Am I, you know, am I going to make it? Self-confidence is such an important part. Not cockiness, not arrogance, although sometimes that helps. <laughs> um, you know, it does. You know? Yep. Uh, but just believe that you can do the things that you want to do. Now, in realism, I got I'm not going to believe I'm going to be the winning jockey at the Kentucky Derby. You know? I'm not, <laughs> not going to win a slam dunk contest. Yay. But in the things that you think you can do and do well, have the confidence in yourself mm. to pull those things off. Because life will come at you. Life will try and tear you down. Other people will tell you no. Other people will say you can't. Don't be the person that tells yourself you can't. Mm. Let, let, let don't let somebody else say that for you. As I said earlier. You go through it with your eyes wide open with the idea that you're going to succeed. So whether you succeed or not, you're the one that says, you know what? I gave it my shot and I'm comfortable with that. Because there's no guarantee for success, especially Mm -hmm. in this business. There's no, I can't tell you 
go to this prestigious college and get into this prestigious law school, and then you will be successful as a lawyer. It don't work that way. It's a very subjective, not an objective business. So at the end of the day, believe in yourself. Believe that you will be good enough and you'll find a way to get it done. Don't short yourself. You decide when the journey over. Mm, that's that's awesome, amazing. Man. Well said. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I, I look, we're going to wrap this up, man. But Trey, I wanted to tell you this, man. I got you. Uh, man, you've been a dear friend, brother. You, beyond uh, someone, a colleague, you've just been a dear friend. You told me the truth. You kicked my ass when you had to kick my ass. You did all the little things. And I, I really appreciate that, man. The reason I call you sensei is that reason, because you've just been, you've meant so much to me through my career of 14 years. Uh, at ESPN, and I want everyone to know this uh, about Trey Wingo. We see him on air, passionate. Mm-hmm. Go look at Wingo. There's passion. They just they they approach the job. You've always approached the job in a professional way, but you've always had a good time doing so. But what people don't know, and we saw a little bit of it as far as the emotions, man. You are a great father, a great husband. And you've done all the little things, man. You've been extremely successful in raising those kids, man. So, man, I just, I admire you, brother. I really do, man. And, and love no, you to shut death. Up. I do, dog. <laughs> love you to death, man. No, look, it means the world, man. And look, that's the part that I'll take away from this whenever it's done and all said and done and, and whatever happens next is that the guys I know that I work with in the trenches here, uh, real recognizes real, for lack of a better term. I know that I can call Darren Woodson at any time five years from now, ten years from now, and the conversations that we had when we were working together on a weekly basis will be the same as it was if we had just picked up and hadn't seen each other in ten years. Yeah, that's awesome. So appreciate you, brother. All right, bro. I'll get back with you. Love you, man. Thanks again for the show, being on the show. Thanks, Trey. All right, brother. Thanks, be Trey. good. Thanks, Thanks guys.